you're listening to the Locked In Podcast. Here's your host, Algernon Cash. I'm Algernon Cash, and you're locked in. Welcome back. Got another great episode for you today. Dr. Christopher Ohl from Wake Forest Baptist Health will be joining us to give us an update on the state of COVID right here in North Carolina. Yes, um, although it's the holiday season and this is typically a time of the year where we would be enjoying family and eating good and visiting relatives that we haven't seen in so long, this is a year that this is a holiday season where we are dealing with COVID and we're seeing a um, record number of cases surge, not only here in North Carolina, but actually happening all over the country, seeing more and more communities, more cities that are having to place restrictions on businesses to prevent the spread of this deadly virus. And um, we, are, we are no exception to the rule right here in North Carolina. I will tell you that um, it's an interesting conversation we're getting ready to have. We did have Dr. O on earlier in the year, and um, certainly I know my audience got a lot of value out of it. Interesting thing is this morning, I was actually talking to a friend of mine who just lost her dad from COVID. And I thought this was a really interesting story. She was someone that didn't really believe in the mask wearing and, you know, was sort of anti-mask wearing like some, a lot of us tend to be. And, um, you know, just thought that this was something that was going to go away. So many people thought this, this virus would magically disappear after the election. But um, not only is it still here, but it is raging at a level never seen before. And um, she told me this morning that she is now not only a big believer in mask wearing, but she wears her mask avidly. And so I'm also someone that's become more and more believer in all this throughout the year. I hope that more and more people are wearing the mask, that you're social distancing, that you're washing your hands, that you're doing the things that our public health officials have advised us to do. You know, some weeks back, we had Dr. Van on, who's the Guilford County Public Health Director, and she talked about just the um, stress on the hospitals here in the triad. And so this is becoming a really, really dangerous situation that we're in. And I'm, what I'm trying to do for my audience is bring you some of the experts and the people that know more about this than me to, to educate you. And so you can get out and educate your friends and family and Hopefully we can all stay safe and, and just get through this deadly virus. I know the governor is going to be speaking here at three o'clock. So I know everybody is waiting on pins and needles to see what that announcement is. And um, I'm certainly waiting to see if maybe he, he outlines some new restrictions to try to reduce the spread of the, the virus. Before we get into the main conversation, I always like to let you know who's supporting us. Um, Angela Harriet, who is with Keller Williams here in Winston-Salem. If you're looking to buy or sell a home, this is actually a good market to, to be in the real estate market. And um, Angela Harriet is waiting to help you. She's a big supporter of the show. She's sponsoring this episode. Um, and I always like to support my friends. I want to support the people who support me. And so I'm encouraging my audience, if you're thinking about buying or selling a home, you want to reach out to Angela Harriet at Keller Williams. Also, maybe go follow Angela on Facebook. She's available on Facebook. Sign up for her email list. She's always sending out a lot of great tips and tools and resources. So once again, I want you to take good care of Angela Harriet at Keller Williams, who's sponsoring the show. All right, so you all are locked in. I'm locked in. We also got Dr. O locked in. Dr. O, welcome back. Any early news on what the governor may say here in the next 45 minutes? Or, Well, I suspect he's going to say there's a Grinch about. Um, and... Um, 
They, uh, our holiday season is going to be a tough one. I'm guessing that he's going to be looking at more restrictions. So what what's kind of different about it is that compared to July, which was the last time when we had a fair amount of COVID going around, the case counts are, are much higher. And um, they're, they're occurring in a population that is, is getting hospitalized. Unlike last spring when, it, when the ICU hospitalizations were going up across the country, this one is, um, is not necessarily ICU, but in general hospital beds. It's getting close to um, where that hospitals are going to have to start doing something different. Um, we're not there now yet, but we're knocking on the door. And we don't want to be canceling elective surgeries or having to go to alternative staff or care plans. That's one thing that's different. It's not just here in North Carolina, but it's actually worse in the midsection of the country and in California also because the number of people per hospital bed in, in California is higher than it is here. So um, I think that's probably what's weighing on his mind, and I know Mandy Collins as well. You know, the thing is, is and you mentioned it, Algernon, that may not be have to do these restrictions if everybody just would do three simple things, and that's avoid crowds, wear their mask, and really do a lot of really good frequent hand hygiene. If we all did that and we were all in, then we might not have to talk about business restrictions, which are painful for all of us. Um, and so um, I, I really I really think you hit the nail on the head with that one. But I was going to no, say, I, I also understand, you know, when you're talking about your friend who lost their dad, more and more people now are, are knowing people who have been directly touched by COVID. And it's tough. It is. I, I only know a handful of people that have been um, affected. I, I've got several friends who um, think that maybe at some point in time they have caught it. Um, but but this this was a really eye-opening phone call I got today from a good friend who actually lost her dad here in the last few weeks to COVID. And uh, she said within two weeks of him catching it, he was dead. Now, he, he did have an underlying condition that, that they were unaware of. The family was unaware of. And the doctor discovered it once they, they did the analysis or the examination. And um, so, it, it, you know, it, it's a lot, lot of families are unfortunately having to learn the hard way um, to wear a mask and social distance and wash their hands and do those kind of things. I want to go to something you, you, you were talking about cases and we, we, we hear a lot about the surging cases across the state, of course, here in the country. What, what are you seeing here locally instead of in terms of daily case count? And then how would you juxtapose that to what we were seeing earlier in 2020? Yeah, so, um, you know, our case numbers, it, if you're a follower of the state dashboard, sometimes you see big spikes, which is simply um, sometimes cases get accumulated and reported all in one day. But in general, we're running between 150 and 220 cases here in Forsyth County. Obviously, the counties around us, which are smaller, like Yadkin County, there's not as many people. So the case numbers are smaller. But if you look at the number of cases per 100,000 in population, here in Forsyth County, we're about 55. Yadkin, I think, is about 70-something. And the counties around us are all between 50 and 60, other than Yadkin. So now if you compare that to the Midwest, some of the counties in the Midwest, where they're having 110, 120 per 100,000, 
we're not quite as bad as they are. Um, but um, but but that's a, it's the highest number we've ever had uh, during this pandemic. Um, our percent te positive tests, which is another measure we we look at, is here in Forsyth County is running about 11%. Um, anything knocking on 15's door means that um, um, that the case counts are, are high enough that it's um, it's going to affect daily life for people. So um, I guess I guess there's a little bit of good news that could be worse. Um, we're not like the upper Midwest, but um, but our numbers um, are, are I think are going to continue to go up some. We're starting to see the post Thanksgiving cases now, so you know I think though that the holiday um, when we look at Christmas, um, I think people should really rethink plans about traveling um, and uh, and how you want to visit with family or friends. Um, and uh, it, it's probably best to be a, a low-key kind of old-fashioned Christmas. Yeah, I've got a friend who did some traveling for, for Thanksgiving, went and visited her uh, boyfriend's family. And um, both of them end up getting diagnosed with COVID when they went back home. And they, they, they're doing fine and they're healthy or they're, they're making it through. Of course, they're young and healthy but I'm not sure how the family's actually doing. And I know earlier in the year, Dr. Old, when we had this similar conversation of the summer, that there was sort of a concentration of cases largely in the Hispanic community and, and then secondarily in the African-American community. Are you still seeing those same trends or has that changed at all? It's more spread out um, now. We don't quite see um, the concentrations now. There still are a few more cases in the, in the Hispanic community. But I'd say, by and large, it's it's spread out. I, I hear I hear about cases, and I talk to my contact tracers um, with the health department. Um, but it's um, where where people are getting it now are are in their families or friends or small social gatherings. I mean, just to throw some things out there that people might not think about. But um, you know, it's the holiday season. And normally, my you know, let's just say my friends and I get together, and we go out to a restaurant, and eight of us sit at a table. Um, you know, and while you're eating, masks come down, virus transmits easier. So that's a scenario that comes up frequently. Or I got it from my husband. I got it from my wife. Um, for kids, I got it from my mom. I got it from my dad. I went home for Thanksgiving, and I got it from my niece or my nephew. Um, and um, the churches now, um, there's some churches in particular that are uh, are not spreading out in the in the pews and are not wearing masks. And those um, those cases are um, are starting to get our attention. Um, you know, it's uh, it's things that a lot of it. It's like, oops, what was I thinking? Is what comes up afterwards. You know, I was just getting some neighbors together. What was I thinking? My teenagers wanted to have a sleepover. I thought it'd be okay for one night. Oops, mm. what was I thinking? You know, it's stuff like that. Um, and, you know, like you say, while, um, you know, some some people are just going to be miserable for a week, but um, but people with underlying conditions who are older, it's it's a it's a big deal for them. I mean, it's, it's it talks about high, been putting in the hospital or worse, so... Um, it's uh, it's not it's not to be taken lightly. 
Are you are you seeing any type of a divide? I know I had Dr. Van on um, some weeks back, who's with the Guilford County Public Health Department. Who I'm sure you you know. I'm sure y'all been coordinating. And in Guilford yeah. County, she talked about seeing somewhat of a divide between rural versus urban. Are, are you are you seeing those same those that same kind of divide? Is it better or worse in rural areas versus urban? Or well, you know. A month and a half ago, yeah, the rural areas were a lot were hit a lot harder than than our urban areas. I think that's spread out some now. Like if you look at our case counts per hundred thousand in Forsyth County, we're not much different than Davidson, Randolph, um, Stokes. There, it's a little bit higher in the rural communities, um, but but it's all pretty much evened out. There's some. There's some counties that, um, that like Yadkin, um, Davie to some extent, Wilkes, um, whose case counts are higher, but um, but it's a little bit more even. It's um, it's not discriminating anymore, like it like it had been a little bit. And and do you and do you, uh, you know, how, and, and not to be a conspiracy theorist, I'm really asking this from a scientific perspective. Do you, do you trust the reporting? Are we underreporting, overreporting? Is there some statistical margin of error? Uh, and what I mean, and what I mean by that, Doctor Old, is I'll, I'm going to use myself as an example for my audience. Um, back in February, for example, I, I had a really what I thought was a really nasty cold, but that was before we were learning about COVID. And then as I learned about COVID and thought about some of the symptoms I had back in February. I'm starting to wonder whether or not I may have had it, but I I didn't go to the doctor, so I wouldn't have shown up in yeah. the in the case count. Uh, do, do you think we're overreporting or underreporting the the case count? Well, almost all communicable diseases we underreport, so you know not everyone will go to the doctor or get tested. Um, you know, I heard people say, well, you know, I was visiting my um, my brother-in-law's family last week. He called. He said he they got tested with COVID, and I developed symptoms, but I kind of know what I have, so I'll just stay home for a few days. Um, so yeah, it is underreported. Um, and and you know if you look at asymptomatic infection, so if people don't have symptoms, they don't know to go get tested unless they knew they were contact or for some other reason. So. But uh, we we underreport almost all of our communicable diseases. It's no different for COVID. Some say you can multiply the number that you're seeing actually by five to ten, and that's mm. more likely the number we're having. So, so for uh, someone like me who thought I may have had it, what 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 would you tell my audience? Should I should I go get tested for the antibody or? Well, in your particular case, there really wasn't much circulating in February, but we did have a lot of influenza. We had an influenza strain shift in February, and so that's probably what you had, actually, then. Um, but, you know, the only way to know for sure if you've had it in the past is to get antibody tested. And there's a lot of, um, a lot of different companies offer antibody testing. Not all of it's incredibly reliable. And it's really not going to affect um, your future so much. So if, for instance, you think you had it um, and um, you, you're still going to want to socially distance and, and wear your mask because you don't want to harbor the virus for a while and transmit it to other people, even if you don't get sick from it. 
And so we're, we ask people to still continue to do that. And once the vaccine rolls around here shortly, like next week, for healthcare workers, um, it's not going to affect whether or not you get vaccinated. So even if you've had it in the past, uh, you still should and can take the vaccine. It just boosts you up more. So it's uh, it, it, it's it's your advantage. So for my audience that's listening, um, you just heard it. If you if you even thought you came into contact with it, you should probably at least go get tested for the antibody. That's something that I need to do myself. And, yeah. um, and, and and again, it just goes back to the, the basic instructions that we gave you at the outset of the show, um, social distance, wear, wash, your, wash your hands, wear your mask, do those things ir- right. ir- irregardless. But um, are we reaching any point um, when we talk about the virus and we talk about the surge in cases, are we nearing any point that the, the so-called herd immunity that I keep hearing about, are we, are we getting close to that point or how, how much further do we have to go before we get to herd immunity? Yeah. First, I want to just clarify, in case I misspoke, is so if you think you've been a contact of somebody who's had COVID, then you should go get tested with the PCR testing. I'm not sure how helpful the antibody testing is for most people, unless you're in a research study. Now, herd immunity, so um, you need about 60 to 70 percent of a population, we think, uh, for COVID in order for herd immunity to make a difference. Um, we're probably roughly at around 15%, maybe some areas a little closer to 20. So we, we would have a long ways to go. Um, and that's that's a long slog that we don't want to do um, because a, a lot of people uh, could die or get really serious infections. It certainly would fill our hospitals up. I would prefer for our group immunity to be done through vaccination. And uh, it's a lot safer, a lot easier, a lot quicker. Um, and that that's the way to do it. I, I read a, um, uh, it was a statewide poll here in North Carolina that came out yesterday. Uh, 30, uh, 30, only 35% of registered voters said that they would take the vaccine. And then I saw another national poll that just over 50% said that they were um that they would they would take the vaccine what do you what do you say to my audience that just feel like they're terrified to take this vaccine and they feel like the whole process was rushed a little too quickly yeah so you know i think as time goes on people will be um will be more accepting of it i i think that if everyone knew what i knew they would be more accepting of it now so even though even though we uh we developed the vaccine quickly. Um, it doesn't mean we did it unsafely. And so the, the first two candidates that are out, Pfizer's vaccine, which we'll see next week, and then Moderna's probably in the first week of the new year, are done with what, what we call messenger RNA technology, which we've been using for, um, for vaccine development for roughly 25, 30 years now. We none of those have ever been brought up by a company to be put into production, though. So a lot of it for business reasons, actually. Um, and um, so, but we do have a lot of experience with it, um, and and we've it's got it's got a good track record in in that realm. The other thing is is that even though the uh, studies were done quickly, um, we didn't cut corners on how we do did the. Uh, 
the clinical trials, um, both phase one, two, and three. Um, so we, we have a fair amount of information, both safety information and efficacy information from large groups of people, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people. You know, I've seen the, that data, the, the data that's available. We'll see even more, I think, on Friday when the FDA comes out with their EUA. Um, and um, the efficacy from these the, the two our messenger RNA vaccines is a absolutely outstanding. I mean, it's up there like with their measles vaccine, which is a fantastic vaccine. And so, um, so it works, and it works well. And, and the safety data um, looks really good, actually. Your arm will get a little sore, like it does after a lot of shots. The needle's still a little sharp. Um, a few people might get a fever afterwards. But these are sort of expected reactions um, and indicate that your immune system's kicking in and, um, and building, building up its immunity to COVID. And that's a good thing. So. Um, I, I, uh, I'm confident about it enough that I'll be taking my vaccine along with the first kick of healthcare workers here. And as soon as my family's eligible, I'm going to immunize them all. And when the kids are available in the summer, um, when we have their data out, I'll have my kids immunized too. So, um, that's how strongly I feel about it. I, um, I, um, I, I think that, um, we really uh, owe it to the um, to our ingenuity and our technology as humans and as uh, and as Americans that we were able to pull this off and get this done in a safe, effective way and and a good and a good time frame. So hats off to us as a society. If we if 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 the numbers I just quoted stand out to be true you know, half the population decides that they just won't take the vaccine. What what kind of position are we in as a country in terms of fighting COVID at that point? Yeah, well, so the more people, obviously, who get the vaccine, the better off we'll be. Um, and um, so what what I think and, and what some of my colleagues think is that probably 30% will rush out and get it right away. And maybe 20% will say, hey, I'm never going to get it. But, you know, we, we have people who won't take any vaccine. So. so, and then the rest of everyone else will wait a little while and get it after they see, you know, how it's going. And um, so I think as time goes on, as more vaccine becomes available, people will be more receptive to it. Um, but, you know, it's not just vaccine to... Um, to, to stamp out COVID, um, you kind of want to build like, you know, when you build a stool, like you're going to sit, you know, sit on in your wood shop, you need three good strong legs. So for fighting COVID, it's the same thing. One of the legs is vaccination and immunity. The second leg is, um, is masks and continuing to mask. And the third leg is being smart about how we behave socially and um, with their gatherings and avoiding people. All three of these things are going to work synergistically and be multiplicative in how they fight COVID. And the goal is to try to create a big mud run. Uh, if you've ever been on a mud run, you know, when you put on the heavy boots and you slog through the mud, um, it's real hard going. And um, 
and the longer you're doing it and the more obstacles you get, the more likely you're not going to finish. And that's what we want to do for COVID. We want to make it have to go through a mud run and its transmission. And if we can slow it down enough, then it won't get transmitted in order to propagate from person to person. So we'll need to do those three things as we go through. And I think if we can continue to do that by this time next year, we're going to have a lot cheerier holiday season. Um, so am I to understand, I, I heard you say you still follow the three W's. So even if I get the vaccine, you, I still need to social distance and do all the, the, the things that we've talked about. I mean, can you still transmit the virus once you have the vaccine or? It, well, yeah, maybe because you could, it might get, it, we, we don't know 100% for sure how that's going to work yet. But, um, but what could happen, because this happens with other viruses that we have vaccines for, sometimes it'll transiently hang out in the back of the nose and throat, won't cause sickness or illness in you, but potentially could get transmitted to another person. Um, you know, it won't hang out there long, but so we do want people to use the masks and continue to distance. Also, you know, even though you have an efficacy rate of 95% for the vaccine, which is phenomenal, it's not, you know, 100% of people. So there will be a few people who won't um, develop an adequate enough immune response. And we want those people to still be protected. And we know the vaccine with the vac or the, the mask helps a lot for prevention of transmission to other people, but it also helps protect you some too. We have good data on that now. So mask and the other thing, you know, masks do, and I and I recognized this on um on Saturday when I was uh the Grand Marshal for the, the Christmas parade and stood outside telling people Merry Christmas for a couple hours. Masks help keep you warm. They do. It's so funny you say that, Dr. Ola. I, um, this, this past, uh, I think it was Sunday or Saturday, I ran out to the grocery store and um, I had the mask on. And, I, 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 and I'll, I'll be honest, I told, I told my audience, I fought wearing the mask for a good part of the summer. I was not one that wanted to wear the mask. I, I was I was rebelling and res resistant. Um, but obviously, as I saw more of my friends and family get impacted by this virus, um, I understood that this was something I needed to do, not only for myself, but, but for the community at large that I care so much about. So I had my mask on this past weekend, and I noticed I was warm. And I, I said, yeah. you know, I, sh I should have been wearing one of these every winter. It, it'll, it'll keep me from catching a cold. and. And it keeps my face warm, so it's um, maybe more people will wear it now that it's gotten colder outside. <laughs> yeah, I wore them growing up in Wisconsin, you know. But so I uh, some hopefully down here though we won't get icicles forming on them. <laughs> yeah, well we've we've got an active audience that's listening to us right now on Facebook, and I do want to tell my audience thank y'all for joining us. Um, this this has so far been a great conversation. Um, you, if you have questions, comments, leave it in the chat section. I am monitoring that as we, we have the discussion. Um, Michael Owens is out there, um, Dr. Ole, and his question was, he says, can Dr. Ole speak on the idea of preventatives like vitamin D, zinc, or um, I guess hydroxychloroquine? I mean, can you speak to some of those alternatives? Yeah. So um, hydroxychloroquine um, doesn't, doesn't work as a preventative. We, we have we have a lot of studies now. It it, it won't help you. Um, the um, there is a nasal spray um, that now is being looked at by the FDA that uh, putatively, according to the company, 
And I haven't seen the data yet, um, but according to the company, we'll, we'll help uh, prevent COVID for 24 to 48 hours. We'll have to see what the FDA says about that, but it's a conditioning spray and antiviral and that you actually put in the nose. Um, vitamin D and zinc, um, they certainly aren't going to hurt you. Um, and anything that you can do that uh, that helps keep you healthy um, is going to help you with COVID. So um, I don't I don't think the data is real strong that it 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 protects you enough that you would not need to wear a mask or do what you otherwise would you know are being asked to do. But um, but it but it it's certainly not going to hurt you. Um, and there's some there's some information about zinc with other viruses that say it's it's got some modest benefit for protecting. So, but it's not it's not going to be as strong as getting the vaccine. That's for sure. Um, so, so if you're taking zinc, get vaccinated also. Michael Sharpton is also out there. Michael, you're a um, loyal listener, and I appreciate you supporting us today. He, he says um, if churches are such um, an issue. Why are we so resistant to enforce restrictions on them? And I, I think I could take that. Uh, you know, churches have a, a religious exemption, and um, they they are constitutionally protected, and so that does limit the the, the governor's um, authority when when it comes to um, shutting them down or or not allowing them to operate simply because of their constitutional protection, which is not extended to um, a lot of other businesses and, and others in the country. If you want to comment on that as well, Dr. Old, go right ahead. Yeah, well, I'll say, first of all, there's a lot of churches who, who are really doing everything they can to be safe, and uh, um, and hats off to them. Um, and there are a few churches who I think just are struggling a little bit with how to do it the best way. I think the numbers that are just being totally recalcitrant to it <laughs> are small, but unfortunately, it's enough to make an impact on transmission. Well, in, in regards to, I mean, thinking, still thinking along that, that line of institutional, um, I, I was visiting a school, I actually toured a private school yesterday and was learning more about some of the things they've got going on, a project that I'm working on. And um, they've got about 350 kids in this private school. Of course, you know, public school is, is being treated a bit different. Do you have any thoughts one way or the other? I mean, do you do you think it's safe for, for kids and teachers to be in school right now? Or? Yeah, I do. Um, I, got, I created a little bit of a stir when I said that publicly uh, on my Facebook. But, yeah, I do think it's safe. Um, and and I'm, I'm not alone in saying that. Um, in fact, last week, um, both Tony Fauci and Mike Osterholm, who – have ID credentials that are, are a little bit longer than mine even, um, said that, that schools are not the transmission um, vehicle for COVID. And it, 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 it's a little bit surprising because I would have said if somebody asked me last March or April, um, I would have said, you know, I would be a little cautious. But that's based on, on influenza. And influenza, the schools are part of transmission. But for COVID, they just haven't been. And some of that's because of, um, of children being a little different um, and how they acquire and transmit COVID. Um, and then some of it is, um, this has to do with how the schools are, are masking and distancing, and they're doing a really good job. 
and um, and when when these schools have have um, students who get who turn positive or who who get, get symptomatic with COVID, they they tend to to not have it for a long time, and they're not getting it in the schools. They're getting exposed in in their homes, usually from their family or from play groups outside of the school. There have been a couple schools that have had some um, some some instances of transmission in the after school athletics, some of our um, private schools in the area, and it seems like it's the bus trip um, there rather than the actual event. Um, so. Um, so yeah, I think schools can be open safely. You know, at some point, um, if there's so much COVID in the community, then teacher and, and student absenteeism gets so high um, that it makes it hard to continue classes. I mean, if you got a third of your teachers in a school who are either positive or have been in quarantine because of contact, it's hard to keep going. But it doesn't mean that it's unsafe. It just means it's logistically difficult. So, but you know the public schools are going to have to, you know, make sure that they um, that they um, you know mind their um, mind their cross their t's and dot their i's. Um, pardon the pun for schooling, but because uh, um, you know the the devil is in the details on creating the safe environment and distancing and masking and how and uh, you do launch and where you do it. But it but it certainly can be done. Um, you have to change a little bit how you how you run your school, but it can be done. Do you you think schools or even businesses, for example, should should they mandate vaccinations <laughs> for their for their employees? Or yeah, well, you know, I get asked this a lot. I I get to ask this a lot from from our healthcare workers who work with me. Um, you know, uh, so the vaccine's going to come out initially as an EUA, which is an emergency use authorization. And so I think it would be very hard to mandate a vaccine until it gets the full FDA stamp of approval, which uh, includes looking at more data than what you get for an EUA. And also, you know, a lot of our vaccines, we don't roll them into mandatory vaccination programs until they've been out for a while, until we have some experience with them. And it was that way for um, hepatitis B, for instance, um, and, um, and for the uh, pneumonia vaccines, pneumovax and such for kids. So I don't think we'll be mandating them um, for a while. Um, but um, you know, what I could see happening for like say healthcare workers in a year or two, you'll be asked to provide a blood test. And if your blood test doesn't show immunity, you'll be asked to, uh, to get the vaccine as a condition of employment just like we do with flu vaccine or hepatitis vaccine or measles vaccine. I mean, we do that with a lot of vaccines, but I think we need, you know, we'll, we'll need more experience before we start mandating it. I think that's an interesting point you just made. I know there's a Congressman, Congressman Delaney, I believe out of Maryland, who has really been pushing this idea of paying Americans $1,500 if they will take yeah. the vaccine. And he wants to tie vaccination to, to these direct stimulus payments that are being debated in Congress. And I, I can see why he, he's encouraging this. He, he feels like it'll, the financial incentive will cause more people to take it. But I think the point you just made that I want my audience not to miss, there, it, it, even if everyone showed up all of a sudden and wanted to take 
fake lie for everyone. And so to, to some degree, this financial incentive program would be short-sighted because it would cause a lot of demand for something that's not even available. Yeah, yeah, it's going to take a while. Um, the, you know, the the current the current federal administration is saying that they they think everyone in the United States will be vaccinated by June who wants the vaccine. I think that's a that's a little ambitious. Um, but um, but I, you know, I think that. Uh, We'll get our healthcare workers done, I'm guessing, by the end of January, and roughly around that time, um, we'll, you'll start hearing about having elderly people um, and people with um, underlying health conditions uh, who can be rolled out for vaccine, and then certain people who are um, um, ha have a lot of contact with other people, potentially even including teachers. And then by um, by late May, maybe, we'll be seeing all the healthy people out there who want the vaccine come and get it. And then towards the end of the summer, I think we'll have our studies done in children. And so kids will probably be towards the tail end of that. That's how I'm guessing it's going to roll out. Kathy Sebastian is out there, a really good friend of mine. I haven't seen Kathy in person in a while. So, Kathy, I hope you're staying safe and washing your hands and keeping your distance and wearing your mask. But she wanted you to comment on, do you feel like, and I know just here in about 10 minutes, Governor Cooper is going to speak. Do you think we should go back into another shutdown just to get this virus under control? Well, you know, I, I would like to see people do what they're supposed to do voluntarily and not have to shut down, man. I mean, you know, the, the shutdown stuff is painful for everybody. Um, and, you know, it's it's not trivial at all for a business. Um, but also, I mean, as individuals, I think we could do it. But also there there have been um, there have been businesses out there who um, who aren't following the um, the current codes that we have. Um, and I, I share a lot of a lot of people have walked into a restaurant and there's no way that they're following the capacity limits. Um, and there's certain restaurants, I, one of which I drive by every night, I won't name it or shame it at the moment, but this parking lot is packed on Friday nights, and there's no way that that's following a capacity limit. Same with some drinking establishments. And, you know, now that it's gotten colder, it's a lot harder to, to have a beer garden um, outside, rather. So people are going inside and... Um, um, and I've also run into some fitness centers that are having trouble with keeping people masked and the number of people down. We've had some um, we've had some cases of transmission that I know of personally in all of those venues, uh, drinking established restaurants and, and fitness centers. So unfortunately, those are kind of higher on the list when you're talking about restricting things because the data, you would also restrict churches, but because they're places of worship, as Algernon pointed out, that one's a little tougher. So, um, but so I'll just so just I want to make sure I heard you correctly. You you you're saying that restaurants, bars, fitness facilities. You believe those are the the major sources of the spread. I, I think for this, I think for the um, it, other than than person and the, the people's family and their own social situations, those are probably actually number one on the list. Um, but after that, as far as community areas, those are the big ones. 
And what's in common with all of those is that the masks come down because um, you know, it's hard to hang, you know, run on a treadmill with your mask on. Um, and, you can, and I've not figured out a way to eat yet with my mask on. Um, and the same thing with drinking. So, you know, the, the, what the situation is is that, you know, four or five or six or seven people will get together for lunch. They'll take their mask down. They finish lunch, but they're still chatting and talking and doing all those things that we like to do, which is what makes lunch fun to go out with other people with. And it's it's being done without the masks. So I can personally tell you about a friend of mine who um, – who got COVID in a in a in a, um, in a dinner situation with some close friends, and it was touch and go for a while. Um, and it was one of those he was one of those hey gee what was I thinking moments um, shouldn't have done that. So, but I think if people did it voluntarily and if the businesses followed through and didn't push the limits on what they were supposed to be doing we wouldn't need to be doing, you know, going back on restrictions. So in a way, having to have to have restrictions again to me is a little bit of a, a little bit that we failed as a society to keep it under tabs, um, you know, on our own. So that's my yeah. personal opinion. And and I, sh- I share the same story. I had a, another friend of mine yesterday who's actually a high-ranking uh, member of the North Carolina General Assembly who contracted COVID at a gym. And what was what was remarkable when he and I was having this conversation yesterday, he was one of the main ones pushing for the idea for gyms to reopen. And when he talked to me yesterday, uh-huh. he says, I, I found out the hard way that 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 is a place where, you you know, COVID is easily spread it. And, you know, obviously you take the mask off to go work out or you did before. Now, under the governor's new order, you sh- you're, you're required to keep it on. And so that I, I thought that was an interesting turn of events, um, you know, when he when he was sharing that with me uh, yesterday. But, um, you, you know, right now, restaurants and bars are still under restriction. You know, restaurants can only operate at 50% capacity. Are. Bars are 30% outside. Um, how, how, much, how much longer do you think we have to do this, these, these, this restricted capacity, until we get this virus under control? Yeah, so, yeah, they are under restricted capacity right now. Unfortunately, there are a lot of them that are pushing those limits. But, um, but if, let's say, everybody was was doing what they were supposed to do. Um, I, you know, I could see was continuing through this, um, at least through February. I, I think once April comes around, you know, or maybe even March, the daffodils pop up and cherry trees start to bloom and we see the azaleas, um, people start going outside more. We'll have some vaccine in people's arms a little bit of a little bit of immunity from the disease. Hopefully, people will be masking more, um, and I think uh, I think things are going to start will start to get easier for us then. You know, I think we got a couple months of mud run slog to go through here, um, and um, and then once we get into spring, it'll get biz- better. And I think it psychologically helps people to continue to socially distance. To say, you know what, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna really, you know, have a small, intimate Christmas this year, and um, and I'm gonna keep wearing that mask and doing what I'm supposed to do, because I can see the light on the end of the tunnel now, and um, and and that's the case. So, 
Um, I really encourage people to just hang in there. Got a couple, three more months to go, and then it'll get easier for us. You mentioned a small, intimate Christmas. I'm, I'm actually uh, planning a Christmas brunch on Sunday for my family. Is, is, is that safe, Doctor Ole? Can I, can I have the family over for chicken and waffles, or should we do it virtually? Um, well, it depends how big your family is and, and where they're at. So. Uh, the chicken and waffle sounds good, though. I'll tell you. I love that. You're a great cook, too. I know that you're a great cook. So well, they're they're all local. Um, my mom hasn't been getting out yeah. the house much because she's a little older, and um, my sister and my daughter. We were going to have them over for chicken and waffles on Sunday, but as I listen to you today, I'm I'm rethinking whether or not that's yeah, a good know. idea. You know, it's all about bubbles and bubble fusion events. So you know, every household's its own bubble. So, you know, you and your family and, and your house are one bubble. Your mom's a different bubble. And your other your other people in your family, even though they you know, have a lot of shared blood, they have different exposure risks themselves. And so um, anytime you get a bubble fusion with another household, um, it's a chance for transmission to occur if you are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatically infected. So I, I think that there's enough COVID out there right now. I'd probably rethink those. Um, I, I have been personally. I I always get together with my um, my brother-in-law and family up in Virginia Beach for Thanksgiving. I, we didn't do it this year, and we're not we're not having the even small household get-togethers with friends or family now. Um, and um, well, Dr. Ole, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to contact my mama and I'm going to blame it on you. I'm going to get I'm going to send her a link to the video so she'll know yeah. that, it, that Dr. Ole canceled the, the chicken and waffles for Sunday. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, man, you can still drop off the chicken and waffles on her front porch and ring the that, doorbell. You're 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 right. I, I'm going to try to work in one or two more questions. The governor's going to be speaking here soon. And I know everyone's okay. going to want to click to go do that. Um, real quick, just on the therapeutics, where, where are we at on the efficacy of the therapeutics? Yeah. So if you catch it and being able to treat it. Yeah, so we got a few things out. Remdesivir is something we use in hospitalized patients. And as modest activity and limits the duration of hospitalization some, and that's been helpful. Um, the monoclonal antibodies, um, quite frankly, um, are a little bit more hype than help. Um, they will reduce the number of people who have to go to emergency department from 9% to 3%, it's not huge. And a lot of hospitals are finding it hard to find places to infuse those. There is a drug in development that's a pill that kind of works like Tamiflu works against influenza. And that's coming along, early data looks promising on that. And so maybe as we get into uh, mid-spring, we'll have, uh, you'll be able to get a, a, a prescription from your doctor and go get a pill for COVID from your pharmacy That'll, uh, that'll um, uh, take the worst part off the symptoms, shorten the duration of illness, and shorten the duration of transmission. It won't be a magic bullet, just like Tamiflu is not for, for flu, but it'll help. Um, and then if you get exposed, or say your, your mother got exposed after a chicken and waffle event, and then you found out you had it and you exposed your mom, your mom could take it to prevent it from occurring in her. And that mm. would be a huge advance. So. Um, that might be late spring, hopefully, uh, knock on wood and a little bit of hope. So, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good things on the horizon for COVID now. Um, so again, well, no, it's, two it's, three months. It's, 
It's good to see that light at the end of the tunnel that you talked about. Here's my last question, um, and I'm going back to Michael Sharpton once again. He says, specifically speaking about private bars, how have cases been directly attributed to these businesses? And I don't know if you're doing that through contract tracing or, or whatever. Yeah, it's, um, it's mostly contact tracing and epidemiologic links. I could get into it a little bit. There's a there's a couple of bars in particular where um, where their name has surfaced several times in contact tracing events. So um, yeah, we you know we haven't chosen to um, to get into that with them yet. But um, I think if you're following the the current guidelines or the new guidelines, if they come out in an hour, yeah, um, I think you'll be okay. Yeah. Well, Dr. O, we always appreciate you just making some time. You're you're the you're, you're the rock star. You're the most wanted guy all, all in in town right now. And um, all jokes aside, we just appreciate the work you're doing. Your team is doing. Um, pass along a hello and a thank you to all the nurses over at Wake Forest Baptist Health. Just everybody who's working so hard to keep our community safe and the frontline workers that are risking themselves to protect us. And um, we're gonna continue to do what we need to do out here so that we don't have to overload your system, but just let them know that our prayers are with them and that our gratitude is certainly with them during this holiday season. And I'm um, certainly we'll get you back on um, to lock in again and, and, and give us another update. And to my yeah, audience, thank you for locking in with me. Um, if you're not a subscriber to the YouTube channel, I gotta encourage you to go do that. This conversation will be on YouTube later today. Um, if you like what you heard today, you can click like, you can share it with a friend, you can send it to a mom or dad that wants to learn more about COVID. Um, this was a great discussion this afternoon. And I want to remind you once again, please take care of Angela Harriet at Keller Williams because she's taking care of us. And also it's the holiday season. And if you're trying to plan some kind of a dinner or you want to send dinner to mom or dad, um, call my friends at JNS Cafeteria, 5835 Samet Drive in High Point. They've got holiday meals to go. You can even have them delivered. You can have them delivered to your family members. Um, not only as a great present, but just a way to let folks know you're thinking about them. Until next time, y'all stay locked in. The executive producer of the Locked In Podcast is Algernon Cash for WCG. The associate producer is Tim Beeman for Such and Such Media. The views and opinions in this podcast are solely those of the contributors and are not necessarily those of our distributors or hosting company. This podcast is copyrighted and cannot be reproduced without express written consent of WGC.